0: You're listening to Africa Rights Talk, a Center for Human Rights podcast series hosted by Tatenda Musinahama. Welcome to the conversation. Welcome to this week's episode of Africa Rights Talk. This is a special episode with Mr. Ayodele Sogunro from the Center for Human Rights. We are going to have this conversation as a follow-up to the initial conversation we had on the NSARS protests that have been taking place in Nigeria. So basically what this conversation is going to be about is just to talk about some of the contested issues, the deep-seated issues that are taking place in Nigeria right now as a result of the protests, because oftentimes people tend to romanticize the nature of these protests and think that, well, people can just go to the streets and not face any implications. So, Mr. Ayo Dele, I'll call him Ayo, as he's a colleague of mine. Before we get into detail about what this conversation is going to be, Ayo, I'm just going to ask you to introduce yourself and describe the nature of the work that you do at the Center for Human Rights.
1: Thank you very much, Tatenda, and uh, it's my pleasure to join you here today. Well, at the Center for Human Rights, I studied there as a doctoral scholar doing my LLD in sexual and reproductive rights issues. And then I am also the manager for the SOGI-esque unit at the center. So I combine both academic work and research with projects and field work for issues affecting LGBTQ plus persons in Africa. And um, outside that role, I am also, of course, uh a, a kind of uh, public opinion, so to say, <laughs> I would say public opinion influencer in a sense in Nigeria by writing and commenting on issues affecting Nigerians on a day-to-day basis, especially in areas of politics and governance, human rights and democratization.
0: So with the n protest taking place in Nigeria and you being based in South Africa, How has been your
1: involvement like? So the my original involvement started with amplifying messages on social media using the NSAS hashtag and helping to get the message beyond the Nigerian borders to as many people as possible by you know expanding on issues of police brutality and sharing the message of protesters on ground. But eventually my involvement began to transcend online issues and began to go into on-ground issues, for example, by helping to secure the release or bail or unconditionally of people who are protesting and have been arrested by the police in different parts of the country. So in some cases, I I would contact lawyers on grounds to go to police stations and to go and see if they could convince the police to release arrested protesters. And in other cases, I would reach out to influential people who could, you know, help give orders directly from the top. To ensure that these people were released. So in the very first few days of the protest, a lot of people were arrested and a lot of us who could or who had the legal ability helped to mobilize and get bail for these persons. Eventually That kind of uh, diminished because the police began to, they were given an instruction or an order from the presidency not not to arrest people anymore. Although that did not itself stop attacks against uh, protesters through other ways and eventually leading into the firing at protesters in Leki on Tuesday, the 20th of October. But beyond that, here in South Africa too, I've been helping to get people on ground for physical protests. Colleagues of mine did the first match to the Nigerian High Commission in Pretoria here. And then we had a second match on the 21st of October, which was a larger, very larger turnout, which I mean, probably thousands of Nigerians gathering in one spot to come and show their anger and frustration with what was going on back home. You
0: touched on a lot of issues in your response. There, You touched on the aftermath of the protests on, on the part of the protesters. But before we get into that, in our previous episode, we talked about some of the demands that the citizens of Nigeria are asking for from the government. As far as the NSARS protests are concerned. And if I gather my facts correctly, one of those demands was to ensure an element of accountability on the part of the government, which the protest has literally brought light on to say that you are being watched and you need to act accordingly because, as the government of Nigeria, you have a social contract with the citizens. You need to act in a manner that shows responsibility and genuine dignity for human beings, right? So, how has the government of Nigeria responded? Responded to these demands as a result of the ongoing Enso's protests. What accountability measures have been taken so far?
1: So, indeed, one of the key issues which the protest demands have uh, uh, highlighted is the fact that uh, issues of police brutality usually go like that without any accountability, without anybody being prosecuted or tried for these crimes. And um, it began to emerge as a core demand that people wanted to see accountability this time around. So, initially, the government in a sense, conceded to this request and said that it was going to you know, investigate allegations of police brutality and that it was going to set up panels for people who had had complaints to submit petitions and investigations would be made into these complaints. And so those were seemingly the reactions that people wanted on the surface of it. But, you know, Anybody who is familiar with Nigerian history will see that there has been a pattern of promises like this being made over the last twenty years since Nigeria began its democratic journey. And all the time, the government would set up a panel, the government would set up a commission, the government would set up a query to look into allegations on either military brutality or police brutality or incidents of extrajudicial killing. And the commission or committee or panel would submit findings. And after findings have been submitted, nothing will be done by the government to follow up on those findings. In essence, people will go scots-free despite the crimes they have committed. And so this time around, protesters are saying that, look, we are tired of the promises. You want to see immediate action before we get out of the streets. So it is not enough for the government to say, we have heard you and we shall do what you want. It is more important that the government say, we have already begun to do those things. We have already indicted persons. We have already brought some people, arrested some people who are responsible. In fact, throughout the protest, names of certain police officers kept cropping up all over the place, like these ones are notorious people, and yet they are still walking around scot-free. Even in the middle of the protest, there were police officers who were brutalizing protesters on camera doing the exact same things that we were protesting against. And so we are like, until we see that all of these people have been either arrested or otherwise brought before some kind of uh, opportunity to be tried, given a fair hearing, we will not leave the streets. But this time around, the government did not ascend to this level of demand. They were like, no, we've already promised that we shall do something about this, so leave the streets. Well, people refused to leave the streets, and then the government decided to escalate it by imposing cough use, and also shooting into shooting at protesters or non-protesters.
0: If I hear you correctly, that is what led to the Leki massacre. Is that right?
1: Yes, because the, the, the whole point is the diff, diff, difference of opinion between the government thinking that it has already acceded to the protest request and the people on the streets and those of us supporting from outside and online who say, no, you haven't done enough. So instead, again, of the government government to listen to what people are really saying regarding accountability, the government simply decided that, oh, you are being stubborn and we will deal with you for your stubbornness. And that is where things went horribly wrong for everyone, since that incident at Lekki, the entire country has been at some kind of economic standstill. Movement has been curtailed and limited. People are no longer free to move around and even worse, the police have been visibly checking their duties, abandoning abandoning their duty posts and allowing those who had more criminal intents to go out on the streets rampaging, destroying property, looting and, and other things. And uh, this, this kind of situation shows that the government doesn't still seem to be interested in really implementing the demands of the protests. Instead, the government seems to want to, you know, bring people to their heels by brutalizing even further, by escalating the issues even more. And so, we are at a situation right now that while the protest has gathered international attention, while it has gathered a lot of, uh, you know, media coverage and a lot of responses from international and other actors, at home, people are still facing severe conditions. There is a sense of insecurity everywhere because the police have said that since they were being protested, they would not go back to their duty posts and they would allow any kind of crime to go on. Secondly, people are being delegitimized or people, including myself, people who helped to uh, amplify the protest are being delegitimized as helping to sponsor the current spree of crime that has been going on. And rather than admit that protesters were attacked, the government is trying to claim that the protest has been hijacked by the thugs and looters or other criminal minded people who have been on the on the streets trying to, you know, take advantage of the of, of the lack of police presence in, in the last couple of weeks.
0: Ayo, allow me to play the devil's advocate here. On the part of the government of Nigeria, isn't some of the demands they have met is changing the special anti robbery squad SARS to what they now call special weapons and active team SWAT. Yes. So is that not the government doing something to actually meet the demands of the people?
1: So again, the issue is that there has been a pattern over the last few years of the government behaving this way. Between 2015 and 2020, the government claimed to have disbanded SAS at least on three or for occasions so the idea of making an announcement and saying we have disbanded the units now is not as important or critical as the fact that the people who are in that unit are being brought to book for their activities or for their actions that were illegal but even worse than that is that in the last two or three days there have been new reports that that same unit or officials of that same unit have been on the streets of Nigeria, arresting people, still torturing people in one case, making people lie down on the floor and whipping them in these last few days. And and so that's the point that it seems either the government or rather the politicians who are elected into government posts do not have control over the officials and, uh, and and people who are personnel of these security forces, including this special anti robbery squad, or they are the ones encouraging them to do further violence. Because clearly there is a disconnect between the promises that are being made in the government aus what is really going on on the streets even as I speak now. So those promises are not sufficient.
0: I see. So basically, you're saying the protesters have been met with intimidation from the government which goes against the real reason why people are taking to the streets. Would you say it's just this culture of government intimidation on its citizens would still continue?
1: So, yes. And you see, that's where the wider conversation comes in. So, first of all, in the last uh, few days since the protest. Began. The government, like I said previously, has been arresting peaceful protesters. Then at some point, local politicians were sending their uh, thugs against protesters. Then at some point, the police was firing gas, firing water at hot water at protesters. At some point, then it, de- it devolved into firing live ammunition at and killing protesters through the military. And even in this week, the government has been fining media houses for honest coverage of the protests. So all of this, like you've rightly pointed out, are just part of the broader intimidation. But you see, we understand that this thing or the, the issues are going to be resolved at, on two different levels. The first level is the immediate short-term. This is where we want to see visible action rather than promises. In the short-term, we need people who have been identified as ringleaders of these brutality cases police personnel who have been identified and and referred to by people and police personnel who are responsible for this brutality in the course of the protest to be identified by the government and dealt with, according to the law, as a quick and immediate win for protesters and as well as a quick and immediate deterrence in the short term to other officers so that they know that the government really is serious about ending that culture. But for the long term, because we all know this might not be sustainable in the long term, for the long term, this brings into question the, the wider conversation around the meaning of the Nigerian states and why the government feels that it is necessary to use force as a means of social control or as a means of forcing social cohesion because without the army without the police on the streets of Nigeria there is that fear on the part of the government that the country will simply disintegrate with everyone asking for secession or people just ignoring government uh, law and other broadly speaking And, and, and so that issue calls into the question then why do you need force to put your country together and that goes back to the origin and creation of Nigeria. And this is, a like I said, a larger conversation around the meaning of Nigeria, the relationship between the Nigerian government and the Nigerian people, and the relationship between Nigerian people amongst themselves. And this is an issue that has been on the burner for almost as long as Nigeria has been existing for almost 60 years since independence because people have said we need to renegotiate the colonial construct of our country and recreate through a national dialogue a society that people are happy to be part of so that you no longer need to use force as the basis for social control because everybody identifies willingly as part of the social contract. So that is ultimately where the long-term conversation would go. But for now, the short-term conversation is focused on let us deal with these police units. Then when we are done dealing with this police unit, we shall deal with the larger system, the larger political system, and how that system itself relies and is dependent on police brutality.
0: Oftentimes, people tend to romanticize protests of the magnitude of the NSARS protests. Besides intimidation and all the things that we've talked about just now, what are the real implications with these protests for people at the forefront?
1: Well, so like I, I mentioned earlier, the situation in Nigeria right now is not, it's not a happy one because Because so far, it seems as if nobody is really getting the benefit of this. Uh, On one hand, you have protesters who are still nursing their wounds from relentless, almost daily brutality during the course of the protests and then eventually resulting in shooting that has killed people. Some people are still missing. Meanwhile, the army and the police and the government are all denying that people died during the shooting. Or if anybody died at all, they died from other causes, but not directly from you know, military, military shooting. On the other hand, we have businesses and other economic activities that have been curtailed now by the curfew that the government has imposed in different parts of the country as a means of preventing further protests and assemblies. And meanwhile, you still have people who were originally unleashed by the politicians against the protesters, that's thugs now, but who have decided that they would take advantage of the existing situation to cause further chaos. And that intent by these people who are criminally minded is being aided by the fact that the police have also staged some kind of silent strike and withdrawn their officers and personnel from the streets so that everywhere seems to be kind of uh, all policed and unmonitored at the moment. So it's like the police is saying, well, if you are going to protest against our brutality, then we will stop policing entirely, which as you can see is just some kind of arm-twisting blackmail. And then in the midst of all this, there are ordinary everyday Nigerians who have been dealing with the coronavirus pandemic, who have been dealing with the economic depression that most countries are facing here, who I've now discovered that relief items for the pandemic were being warehoused by politicians throughout in vast warehouses where bags of rice, bags of noodles, bags of, you know, corn and other food items were being stored. And so people are breaking into these warehouses. Again, since the police have withdrawn from the road, people are breaking into these warehouses and cutting away with items that should rightfully have been distributed to them in the first place. So we have this entire Kyoto situation in nigeria right now and instead again of politicians coming acknowledging where they have failed and acknowledging what they can do better they are still intent on delegitimizing the protests evading accountability either within themselves or for the for the um, security personnel and even was just commiserating amongst themselves and you know making it seem as if they are the victims in in all of this and, and that is just a very unfortunate situation right there.
0: As far as the Leki massacre is concerned, critics have requested the engagement of the International Criminal Court in investigating these extrajudicial killings that have allegedly taken place, right? Is this request as a result of the lack of faith in the Nigerian judicial system?
1: Yeah, um, the ICC, broadly speaking, would only by itself initiate prosecution and trial of international crimes when it is convinced, apart from issues of jurisdiction, that the country or the state in question is unwilling to prosecute or hold people accountable for these international crimes or doesn't have the capacity to do so. In the Nigerian case, I think it's a mixture of both. We do not have that capacity in on one hand, and, and that's something which we can discuss at length on the capacity of the Nigerian criminal justice system to hold people accountable for international crimes. We have not even domesticated the Rome statutes, for instance. So our laws do not strictly speaking recognize the international crimes under the Rome statutes, even though we are a party to the to the, to the treaty. But more importantly, even if we did have the capacity, we don't have the political will. And this is demonstrated again, like I noted earlier, by two decades of the government avoiding to bring people to book for various crimes and for various human rights violations over, over the years. In the last 20 years, there has been at least 15 or 16 commissions of inquiries or panels to investigate to crimes, from the crimes that they were committed by the military before the civil rule began in 1999, to, to crimes that were committed in the course of the war against terrorism in the northeast of Nigeria, to the most recently, for example, the shooting of members of the Islamic movement of Nigeria Shiites in Zaria, and even the, the shooting of IPO protesters, that's the independent people of Biafra protesters in, in southeastern Nigeria. And there have been so many panels and commissions that were set up to look into this, but eventually, whenever it's either they complete their reports and they don't indict anyone or recommend anyone to be prosecuted, or they they complete their investigation, recommend people to be prosecuted, and the government doesn't do that. And so, in a constant pattern of this kind of evasive uh, governing when it comes to criminal responsibility, it becomes clear that we would be needing an international and independent entity to step into the situation and make Sure that victims receive justice because, again, it is in the interest of justice that this has to be done. So, despite the, you know, that people might have regarding whether the International Criminal Court has always targeted African countries and things like that. A lot of people in Nigeria right now are desirous of that kind of intervention by the International Criminal Court. And I hope that the prosecutor for the International Criminal Court would eventually deem it fit to identify cases where a valid prosecution can can be made and proceed with this accordingly.
0: Really, looking at how much progress the African Commission on Human and People's Rights has made over the years, what remedies does it provide and offer in an instance such as this before we seek the assistance of other international bodies to look into African matters?
1: Well, yes, certainly. So some of us have already communicated with the African Commission on, on this issue. For instance, the Center for Human Rights, along with the Dola Omar Institute at the University of Western Cape, wrote a joint request for emergency intervention to the African Commission on the situation in Nigeria. And amongst other things, we hoped that the African Commission would draw the attention of the chairperson of the Assembly of Heads of States and Governments of the African Union to the situation, or and also draw the attention of the Peace and Security Council to this situation, as well as inform the Executive Council of the African Union again also of this situation. And this also includes the power of the African Commission to have what they call uh, a kind of uh, on-ground Mission to go and investigate the situation by themselves. So the African Commission can appoint a delegation to conduct independent investigations into the issues and into the reports of brutality and violence and, and, you know, shooting of unarmed protesters. And more importantly, it is also possible for the African Commission to, you know, if a case is brought before it, which will be done by NGOs who are interested in this matter of observer status, to issue relevant judgments. So, to say, or uh, at least some, some kind of statement on the situation and against the Nigerian state, ordering it to make certain restitutions or to do certain things to remedy the existing situation and make sure that victims have justice eventually. So there is quite a lot that the African Commission can do. So far, the African Commission has issued a broad statement condemning police brutality and asking the government to respond to the protesters. But that was a couple of weeks ago now and since have escalated since that time. And so we are looking out for the fact that the African Union can do more in terms of the human rights issues. But in a sense, the work of the African Commission and the ICC do not really overlap because while the African Commission is focused on human rights violations that are contrary to Nigeria's obligations under the African Charter, the ICC is more concerned about bringing individual persons to trial, you know. So the African Commission will be concerned about the state as a whole while the ICC will be concerned about specific individuals and their roles in all of this.
0: Thank you so much, Ayo, for clearing all this out. I'd just like to ask you if you have any concluding remarks.
1: Well, so for a, a lot of us, I mean, these are issues that are issues of literally life and death and you know Nigeria or Nigeria's government is very unlikely to listen to us by itself without pressure from the international community. And that is why right now a lot of Nigerians are counting on a lot of people outside the country, both Nigerians in the diaspora and the international community generally, to help in continuing to amplify this message and thereby exert pressure on the government. But more importantly, to also put pressure on their own governments to make statements or... Or to issue sanctions on relevant Nigerian officials, for example, through visa bans and similar steps to just put that pressure on and let the Nigerian government know that this is not an issue, that it can simply sweep under the carpet.
0: Oh, Aya, one very important question that I forgot to ask you is how exactly does all this really play out, especially for previously marginalized groups of people in society, for example, the persons with disabilities, but particularly sexual minorities in Nigeria. I think I saw some rhetoric going on in social media about the involvement of sexual minorities and some comments there. I just want you to walk us through, even as a person who works with the SOGS unit at the Center for Human Rights, how does this protest really affect sexual minorities?
1: So, um yeah that is a very nuanced issue on one hand, the protests have been able to help minorities to articulate their own issues, their own stories of oppression with the police because as with everything else in Nigeria, it is those who are the most vulnerable in any given context that almost always face these kinds of oppressions and marginalizations so people who belong to the LGBTq community are More even more likely to face police brutality than you know, hetero members of the society. And so this protest has allowed everybody to come out and share their stories and to say, look, this is how we experience police brutality. This is what we have been able to also contribute to this protest And as a community. Unfortunately, while some communities have been recognized by the wider society in terms of this protest, for example, there have been contributions for people with disabilities who came to the protest for to help get protest sticks and things like that. And there have been you know, special recognition to people with disabilities also. When it comes to other groups, Nigerians are still very much close-minded. So when it comes to, for example, the issues of queer people, almost all of social media went into an opera when the feminist coalition that has been helping to you know manage resources and coordinate resources used by protesters tweeted their support for an all inclusive protest including for the issues of sexual minorities and people said no this is not what we want this seems to be an agenda to use this protest to you know entrench lgbt issues into our into our laws and so that same narrow minded close minded homophobic approach surfaced even in the middle of what was a united protest up to that point. And there were reports again that some queer people at protest grounds were being harassed because they had a rainbow flag with them or because they identified as queer, they were harassed by other protesters and in one case even had their flag and placards ripped off. So while it might seem on the surface that this is a great opportunity for everyone, regardless of of your affiliation, regardless of your sexuality or sexual orientation, in reality... We are still dealing with issues within the Nigerian population itself or the on a lack of understanding of what it means to have an equal society. And like I noted previously, this is part of what you in the larger conversation, the wider conversation we would have going forward. Because just as the government is entrenched into a system that necessitates police brutality, the people themselves are also still entrenched into hierarchical systems of what is, you know, considered to be the right way and things that are considered to be wrong, and thereby creating discrimination, fueling prejudice, and resulting in equality for several communities in the country. So this is going to be part of the wider conversation going forward, but at least I am glad that so far members of the LGBTQ community in Nigeria have also been able to express their own issues as it deals with police brutality in, in the country. Thank
0: you so much, Ayo, for joining us today.
1: you welcome. I'm happy to be here.
0: This has been Africa Rights Talk with me, Tatenda Messina Hamai. Join us in our other episodes as we continue to explore other human rights issues.